Well, a few weeks ago, we started a series called Spiritual Urban Legends. And if an urban legend is a belief, a story, or a bit of folklore that gets passed around as fact, a spiritual urban legend is the spiritual equivalent. It's an idea that sounds good, contains a bit of truth, but in the end, it fails. Now, spiritual urban legends often have been around so long that they are unquestioned and assumed to be true. Um, And so in recent weeks, we've looked at some of these and examined and tried to understand what might be true and what might not actually be as true as we might think. So we've looked at spiritual urban legends like the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, except when it's not, and the idea that God has a blueprint for your life when actually he has something that resembles more of a game plan. And last week, we looked at the idea that everything happens for a reason, except that not everything does happen always for a reason. But if you've looked at this week's topic on the front of your program, you've probably thought, well, wait a second, aren't you mixing two together, kind of putting two of them together, the idea that you should follow your passions or the idea that you should let your conscience be your guide? So why are these two together? Why don't we take one week and talk about one and one week and talk about the other? Well, the reason is is that I believe the two are related and share a similar underlying assumption. And if you're wondering what that is, let me just say that uh, we'll, I want to ask you to hold that thought until the end. We'll get to that. And first, though, I want to look at these two statements for what they are. Now, to mix it even more, make it more confusing, I'm going to mix these up and do the second one first. Let your conscience be your guide. Now, if you're as old as I am, you probably first heard this idea in a movie called Pinocchio. It's the story of a Tuscan woodcarver who makes this uh, marionette. Geppetto makes this. He names it Pinocchio. And he has this, he's so proud of what he's done that he has this great wish that Pinocchio would be a real boy. During the night, the blue fairy comes and visits the workshop and brings Pinocchio to life, kind of. He still remains a puppet, but he's told that if he proves to be brave, truthful, and unselfish, he will become a real boy. And the blue fairy assigns Jiminy Cricket to be his conscience. And so the scene ends with this song that Jiminy Cricket sings, a catchy little tune called Give a Little Whistle. I won't sing it, but I will read the lyrics. He says, when you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. Now, the idea behind this song is a noble one, and that is that, in fact, in many ways, it's wise, because if you're considering a decision, a course of action, it's always good to pause and say, is this the right thing to do? Now, we'd all be better off if we did this. In fact, it would save us a lot of heartache and suffering and pain if we would just think before we act. So in general, listening to our conscience keeps us more or less on the straight and narrow path of life. But, and this is a big but, Not always. And I know what many of you are already thinking. You're thinking, are you telling me that I should just ignore my conscience? I shouldn't listen to it? And that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that our consciences aren't always as reliable as we might think. And that there are other considerations that we need to take in mind when we make moral decisions. Decisions about what we should do and what we should not do. One of the assumptions that many make is that God has given us a conscience as a way of guiding human behavior. And I agree. In fact, I've made the case that one of the key arguments for the existence of God is the fact that we as human beings share this common idea of morality across cultures, around the world, and through history. Um, There have been common ideas about what is right and wrong, fair and unfair, what we ought to do and not do. And it's amazingly consistent. 
It seems we have wired in us a built-in idea of morality. The ver- you know, we have things that uh, are similar wherever humans have lived live or have lived. The value of life, the importance of fidelity, the virtue of love, and you wonder where these things come from. And one argument is that they come from God. And it's a compelling argument, one that I believe has much persuasive power. However, I don't believe that we can carry that argument to its logical extreme. And that is the extreme of suggesting that just because we have a conscience makes it infallible, that we can trust it to be 100% right in any and every situation. So if that's the case, then the myth here is let your conscience be your guide, and the problem with that is that your conscience isn't always trustworthy. Now, I want to explain this problem using a metaphor, and that is by comparing a thermometer to a thermostat. So what does a thermometer do? Well, a thermometer tells us how hot or cold it is in the room. It doesn't define, and a thermostat, on the other hand, doesn't define hot or cold, but adjust the temperature to meet our preferences. So in our home, uh, we set the temperature in the, in the winter at 70 degrees, in the summer at 75. We used to do 68 and 76, but we've gotten older and so narrowed it down a little bit. So right now in our home, the thermometer is, or thermostat is set at 70 degrees. And what it does is it adjusts the temperature. It lets it be a little hotter if we need to warm up the room or allows the temperature to go down if we want to cool off the room. But what it does is it adjusts the heat up or down based on our preferences. So what does that have to do with our consciences? Well, it's this. Too often, our consciences function like thermostats. They don't actually reflect the moral temperature in our lives. Instead, they respond to internal subjective adjustments. In other words, there are times when we reset our consciences to the standards that we choose, and it's easy to do. Most of us can identify attitudes and actions that we once thought were wrong, but now produce hardly a twinge of guilt. By the way, that can happen in both directions. We can find ourselves adjusting our consciences down, setting them too low, justifying things that we normally would not have done, saying, well, everyone's doing it, or who cares as long as I'm not hurting anyone, or that's just a little harmless locker room talk. (laughs) Okay. I don't tend to get political, but... At times like this, we ask, what's the big deal? When really what we're doing is revealing how callous our hearts have become. But we can also set our consciences too high and end up with overactive legalistic consciences that rob us of joy and freedom and make us judgmental to boot. So I I, uh, am a Kansas City Royals baseball fan. I I like the Twins, but I really like the Royals. And one of the greatest moments of my life was when the Kansas City Royals played in the 1985 World Series. So it went to seven games and a memorable sixth game. And I remember going to church, the seventh game was on a Sunday. I went to church that morning and the pastor talked about how if you were really committed to Jesus, you wouldn't watch the game on Sunday night, you'd be at church. And so guilted into going to church, I went at seven o'clock that night and missed most of the seventh game. You know, it's, I should have watched the game, but it's, it's, (laughs) You know, what I have learned, though, is it's far more common to adjust our moral thermostats low than it is to adjust them high, but we can do this in either direction. St. Paul was once being criticized, and he felt justified in what he was doing, but rather than tell his critics that he was just simply listening to his conscience, he said this. He said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. 
but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So what he's saying is, you know, basically my conscience is clear, but my real appeal here is to a different standard. Not my conscience, but my appeal is to God, the one who judges right from wrong. What Paul knew is what we've, many of us have learned over time, and that is that it's easy to develop blind spots. In fact, it's more and more difficult sometimes for us to discern what's right or wrong because we do adjust our preferences and adjust our consciences to fit those preferences. We may do that by adjusting our consciences to fit the prevailing winds of culture, taking our moral cues from others. In fact, the people we hang around with influence us sometimes more than we might imagine. And it's really good to choose good influences in our lives to help us keep in the right direction. Even the majority, and frankly, sometimes the majority can be wrong. Now, whether the cause is internal, it's us just adjusting things to fit our preferences, or whether it's external, making adjustments to fit in, we can end up with consciences that are not as accurate, not as helpful as we might need them to be. And when that happens, our moral judgments are not as good. So that raises a question then. If our consciences are flawed, what good then are they? If they're unreliable, why do we even pay attention to them? Well, as unreliable as our consciences may be, I think they are surprisingly good. In fact, I think often our attempts to adjust them are unsuccessful because deep down we know something's wrong and we just don't want to admit it. I had someone come to me once and uh, ask me a question. He said, are the art books that I have at home sinful? I was totally baffled by the question because I was thinking Michelangelo, Monet, um, Renoir. And then he said, well, they're books of fine photography. And still I was a little you know, clueless because I thought of Ansel Adams and other photographers. And then he said, well, they're art shots of women, but they're not pornographic. So I said, then why are you asking me the question? If you don't, deep down inside, suspect that there's something wrong with those particular books. Well, he got mad and unfriended me on Facebook, and that's pretty much the last I've <laughs> heard from him. Here's what I believe our consciences are good for. They are like early warning systems. Unless they've been so neglected and adjusted that they're useless, I think that our consciences can be a helpful way for us to start asking questions about whatever it is we're considering. Rightly understood, our consciences are more like yellow lights. In other words, what they tell us to do is to slow down, to be cautious, to start maybe putting, taking our foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake pedal. Um, but they are horrible green lights. They don't tell us all the time the right thing to do. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy is that our consciences are no better than the quality of the data that we put into them. So instead of relying on our intuitions or looking around at the surrounding culture or the media, what we need to do is to look to something more substantial, and that is to God. Now, our conviction here at City Church is that God has given us a trustworthy and useful tool to help us calibrate our, con our consciences, and that's the Bible. The Bible, not our consciences, is our final authority in faith and life. Let me just give you one example where this is explained. Paul had a, a friend, a young friend named Timothy, someone he was mentoring, and he wrote him this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, from infancy, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, if you want to be reconciled to God, the Scriptures can point the way. Then he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what he's telling Timothy is that what you have in the Scriptures, what we now understand to be the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, 
um, are useful for us in helping us to be able to discern between right and wrong and to know what God expects of us. So how can we summarize all of this? Well, I believe that our conscience is a helpful tool, but it needs to be calibrated by what we find in the Bible. So our conscience, is it our guide? Well, it's helpful, but it needs to be calibrated. Now, with that, I want to shift gears and look at the second of today's spiritual urban legends, that is, the, the idea of following our passions. Now, this is a familiar um, theme for college graduation speeches, most famously Steve Jobs' 2005 Stanford commencement address. And the idea is articulated a number of different ways. It might be listen to your heart, be true to yourself, pursue your dreams. But the assumption is, is that if you want to find the direction for your life, look within and you'll find the answers there. So we're supposed to take time to discover ourselves, think about what's important to us, what our priorities are, what arouses our passions, and do all of this when you're 20 or 21 years old. The process, though, begins and ends with yourself. So what's the problem? Because it sounds great. Who wouldn't want to do something that gets them all revved up? It sounds so bold and daring when the alternative sounds so bleak and dull. So what might be wrong? Well, let me give you the first of the reasons why I think this is uh, not a helpful idea. And the first is that it's not practical. Uh, I saw a survey this week uh, asking college students what they were passionate about. And 90% of them named either a passion involving sports, music, or art. But only 3% of the jobs in the world involve sports, music, or art. And competitions for those jobs are fierce and often, especially in art and music, not very well compensated. This week we got an application for our new student ministries uh, pastor position. And the candidate, one of the candidates uh, on his resume said that his stated goal was to be a U.S. senator within 10 years. And I looked at his resume and I thought, he might be passionate, but there is not a chance in, well... <laughs> There's not a chance that he is going to end up being a U.S. senator in 10 years or anything. In fact, I would wager with any of you. I know that I would win the bet. Just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean you'll be particularly good at it. And even if you're good, it's unlikely that you'll be good enough. That's why graduation speeches aside, following your passions seldom works out. But that's not the biggest reason why this is a bad idea. The bigger issue is that looking within is not the best way to find and live a meaningful life. A few weeks ago, we suggested that God's will for your life is not a blueprint, but it's more of a game plan. That is, that God wants you to live out the general principles that you find in the Bible, make choices according to those principles, and then he gives us great freedom to work, operate within those principles. And I suggested five things if you want to find God's will for your life, starting with check the Bible, discover the principles that should guide your life, obey those, and then next step is to pray for wisdom. Then ask for advice. Find those who know you best, people who are wise and understand both your gifts and the opportunities that you have and can help you make good decisions. And then I said note circumstances. Look at the opportunities that come your way. Know what God cares about and then evaluate whether or not those opportunities might be a good uh, way forward, be good path forward. And then I said, do what seems best, do what you want. In other words, what fits with your passions, your desires, your interests, your dreams, whatever you want to call them. It is one ingredient in the process, but it's only one and not the most important one. The truth is also, uh, for any of you who are older than about 18, you know that your passions often change. 
And then if we look inside and only look inside, we'll miss some of the external input that may help us. In fact, often what we find out is that our internal desires are very selfish. But if we pursue a relationship with God, we'll find that he gives us a whole new set of desires. Let me give you an example from the writings of St. Paul in Romans chapter 12. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What Paul is saying here is that our passions, just like our consciences, are not reliable. Instead, we need to allow God to transform us from within to give us a new set of desires. In fact, um, Jeremiah tells us that even our desires, our hearts, can be twisted and even deceptive. He says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? What we understand is that Jesus died on the cross not just to improve us, but to recreate us. He intends to transform us from the inside out. That means that as we grow to be more like Jesus, we will find new desires emerging. In fact, sometimes we'll find that we care about things that we used to not care about at all. If we pursue our own desires and passions, we'll find that we're a little bit like the Grinch and the Grinch that stole Christmas. We'll end up with shriveled up hearts consumed by our own selfish interests and become less fulfilled, not more. It's only in pursuing Jesus, in reading God's word, in remaining open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit that we will find ourselves led in directions that we most need to go in our lives. And where you might end up might surprise you. Coming closer to Jesus may cultivate in you a passion for justice, justice for the poor, for women, for children, for the immigrant. It might give you a passion for righteousness, for seeing the beauty and the way of life that God has laid out for us, not in a way that makes you judgmental, but a way that makes you good, really good, in the best sense of the word. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me and assume that I'm promising that if you do all these things, your life will be happy, at least not in the sense that most people think of happiness. Sometimes following Jesus is hard. Sometimes life ends up being messy. But I believe there's deep satisfaction that comes in pursuing something higher than your own selfish desires. So instead of thinking about what we can get out of life, let's think about what we can give. C.S. Lewis once wrote that if we pursue God, we will find that our true desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. And he said it this way, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased." Now, I would agree that our passion should play a role in helping us determine the direction of our lives, but it's just one role. It's just one step and not the most important one. People regularly ask me, in fact, I was just asked this on Friday, uh, to describe how it is that I went from working at General Mills to being a pastor. And I think most people expect that when I tell the story, there's going to be uh, uh, bright lights, audible voices, and a Steven Spielberg computer graphic images in the sky but that's not my story. In fact, even the decision that I made to be the pastor of this church didn't happen that way. In fact, until that opportunity came along, I thought I would end up being an executive in some kind of parachurch or nonprofit organization. But when this opportunity surfaced, I knew that it was something that God wanted done, and I knew that, or at least I thought that I could do it. It wasn't the only thing I was considering doing, but at the time, it was the one that made the most sense, and it's worked out, I think, okay. So if you're wondering what direction to take with your life, don't start with your passions. Start by asking some questions, questions about what is it that needs to be fixed? What needs to be done? 
And what can I do to serve others? Now, let me just say, this doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to start a multi-million dollar nonprofit. You can start by just looking around you at the people that you're connected to and asking how you can serve them. That may be all you ever do, and that's okay. But it needs to be something that pursues a higher purpose, something beyond yourself, beyond your own self-interest. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that these two ideas, following your passions and letting your conscience be your guide, are different but linked by a common underlying assumption. And what is that? Well, the assumption is is that you find direction for your life from within. And that, as we've seen, can be misleading. The first myth we talked about, the idea of letting your conscience be your guide, has to do with our ability to make moral judgments. And the second, follow your passions about the need we have to set direction for our lives. If we do the first one well, we need some external guidance. And to do the second one well, we need God to transform our desires and help us to follow a path that might help us uncover what God would have us to do. The truth in these spiritual urban legends is that God does want us to make good moral choices and he does want us to establish a meaningful direction with our lives. But we can't simply do that by looking within. We need to follow Jesus, not our passions and fine-tune our consciences with wisdom from God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful that you have not left us on our own just internally to figure all of this out. We thank you that you have given us insight and wisdom in the Bible, um, insight that can help us understand what is good and what is not good, um, what is a right direction and a wrong direction. And Father, we also thank you that you have not left us alone to just do things that feel like duty and drudgery, but you've also allowed us to tap into the passions and the desires and dreams and hopes that we have, and that you weave those things together with what is good, and that you give us the desires of your heart so that we are passionate people, but we're passionate about the things you care about. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.